A brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was a son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, now on 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. It's July 4th, Rabbi. Yeah, and you know what? Just to top off July 4th, I got a call from the Board of Elections. They have certified the election result. Mike Bloomberg won in 2009. They just came <laughs> for, forward. For a fifth term. <laughs> ah, they just told us that, you know, wow, what a fiasco. What a fiasco. Bring professionals in. You need people who are fully, fully trained. I don't know what the level is here, but there's something very wrong with all of a sudden 130,000 extra votes that were test ballots. And it, but it goes to show you how, how this, this new voting system, which, you know, we, we, we had our guests, uh, you know, on the show tell us and explain to us this, you know, uh, ranked choice voting. But you, 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 you had Eric Adams. Uh, in the lead, and Maya, Maya uh, Wiley, Wiley right. coming in second in the first round, and then in the second round, because of ranked choice voting, uh, Maya Wiley is bumped, and Kyron Garcia is is is, is yeah, in second yeah, place. Yeah, Catherine Garcia was, was in second place. Yeah, yeah well, she, you know, and what she did with Yang, saying, you know, make me the. He said, make her my make her the number two. So <laughs> well, you know, that happened. <laughs> that could have the number two could easily become number one. So we don't know at this point. Um, but we soon will. But today, July the 4th, I want to mention to you, Reva, I was reading about the Liberty Bell, you know, that has the biblical inscription to proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants. Um, but there's a crack in the bell. You know, it was sounded, was it 1846? It was Washington's birthday. They sound this bell, and it cracked. And I think there's a message there. You know, a crack you can fix. You, you, you may not make it perfect, but you can make it better. And I think that's the lesson, America. Yeah, we have some cracks. We have some warts. But let's not lose sight of this magnificent place that allows us to be who we want to be. We live in an amazing nation. I, 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 I will tell you, I look back. It's because my mother became naturalized and then she... You know, had me file file papers and whatnot, and I became a naturalized citizen uh, of America. And, you know, that was special for me. I carried that citizenship, and I continue to do it with with pride. It's a special nation. And, yeah, like you said, you know, they're they're, they're cracks. You know, every significant social problem uh, can be traced back to some fault line in our social institution because they're being... Created by by broken and wounded human beings. Look, Leonard Cohen. You know, if the human being who creates it has a crack, <laughs> of course, you know what he creates was, is going to have. Was, that same. was Reverend Bernard, everyone. I, I know that was. That was yeah. I got to be careful so, with that one. Um, <laughs> no, but I, you know, it's 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 a crack. Leonard Cohen was a great uh, singer poet. Said, "There's a crack in everything God has made. That's how the light gets in." And I think when we see some of the, you know, some of the ruptures, we see. You know, some of the, the real challenges. We look in, we look through and say, now let's make it better. Let's do that together. Um, yeah. So, you know, perfect, you're not going to find in a person, you're not going to find in a country. Besides you and I, 
where are you going to find perfection? And I'm not sure about you. I I will tell you. Let me reflect very quickly because I was down in Knoxville, Tennessee, Rabbi, invited by uh, a group of clergy, black and white clergy, uh, to facilitate a conversation about building bridges. Uh Uh, Dr. Bernice King, Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, uh, was part of the panel. Uh, Myself and a young millennial who is an executive for Facebook um, named Nona Jones. And Rabbi, it was an amazing conversation. We had in the audience Black Lives Matters. We we had KKK representatives. We had elected officials. We had a, a, a wonderful diversity of race and ethnicity, people, faith coming together. And we had an hour and a half conversation and people left there inspired and encouraged because it was all about having civil discourse and how we can work together. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to have more and more of that. So for me, this is a special, special Fourth of July yeah, because I, it's filled with additional hope. I wouldn't want to be the person who had to make the seating arrangement in Knoxville. Uh, you said you had the KKK <laughs> and Black Lives Matter. You know, and, and we, other, we, no one know who is who. That was oh, the I know. I think I think it's separating gang from Black Lives Matter. I think you can do it. All right. Look, we have a great guest today, former FDMI Commissioner Sal Casada, who was so engaged in the rescue and recovery uh, following September 11th. So I'm sure he has much, much he's going to tell us uh, about the tragic collapse in Florida. So stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be back right here on 77 WABC, The Rev and The Rabbi. Rabbi. Where faith matters. The Rev and The Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, we have a guest today who... I see as a legendary figure here in New York City. Uh, he not only heroic, he's very humane, and it's a very, very powerful conversation. We've become very close over the years, so it's an honor to have with us former FDNY Commissioner Sal Cassano. Good morning, Commissioner. Good morning, uh, Rabbi, and good morning, Reverend. Pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. Thank you. So... How did you react, if you could just go back a little more than a week, when you read or saw the collapse of the building in Florida? What was your immediate reaction, if you can recall? Uh, It was just, um, it really was a horrifying sight to see. And for any of us that were involved in September 11th, I know it brought back memories of that day vividly, and I just um, knew what the first responders were go- first responders were going through, what they were facing, and um, it was just um, it brought up all these raw emotions again. It, I, I didn't think it would, but it it did in, in the respect of just looking at the debris and how high it was piled and how compact it was. It, it just brought back these visions of, you know, looking at the rubble at the World Trade Center and seeing so many floors compressed into a couple of feet. And I, and I know that's what they were facing there. And I just, my heart breaks, it breaks out for all of the, you know, it's not just the people in that area, the whole 
state of Florida is, is going through some really tough times. And that's the memories that brought back to me is just looking at the pile and how compressed the debris was and knowing what they were going to face in the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. when they had to go through it very delicately, but putting themselves in harm's way. You know, a lot of people don't realize that those first responders are putting themselves in such severe risk because they know that there might be somebody still alive. And, and you want to give those families hope that everything that was possibly done to rescue their loved one was being taken. And, and I can tell people from my looking at what I saw on TV and what I read and what I heard, those people are doing a tremendous job in, in searching through those voids now that they're finding. And really, they're still in danger. You know, the weather conditions are against them. Uh, the smoke and the fire conditions are against them. Uh, it's just so hard to do what they're doing, and and the weather and the conditions that just are making it even harder. But they're still there. They're working around the clock. You know, they're getting relieved every 12 hours, and they've brought in people from other states, other task forces to help them out because now there's a couple of storms on the way, which is you know making it even more worrisome. Commissioner, you use the word delicate uh, about three times, I, I, I believe. And people don't realize how important that is because it's not like you can go in there with bulldozers and backhoes and start moving rubble because if you do that, you can you can potentially lose lives that may be uh, still breathing, correct? That's, Reverend, that's the point of the whole carefulness of the way we remove rubble. It's not rubble, by the way. It's, it's debris. It's building material. Because if you find a void, or if you're looking for a void, just moving one piece of concrete the wrong way could not only fill that void, but it could bring down other pieces of that building on top of you. You know, I mean, I'm sure they have devices on all those buildings like like we did, so if there's any slight movement, it'll be picked up. But it's still, it, it happens in a matter of seconds. That's why they have to be so careful when they're going through, the you know, the the debris and and the voids. And, and removing it very delicately because you don't want to cause any other movement other than what you're moving. And, and how long do you do that? It, but you just don't know. Yeah, but how, how long do you go before you say, okay, we've gone from search and rescue to, um, what do we call it, recovery? recovery. I, I don't recovery. know. What, what is recovery. it? Recovery. Yeah, it's from search and rescue to recovery. Okay. Um, I will tell you, Reverend, it's it's going to be a while yet because... If they're still finding voids, and I mean void where people, where they think it's large enough for somebody to survive, they're going to continue to do a search and rescue until they don't find any void where they think somebody could really uh, survive. And, and by the way, they'll go a few more days after that just to make sure. You don't want to give up any chance of saving somebody because you want to go to a recovery effort right away. And I don't mean right away because they're not doing it right away, but you're going to give it a little yeah. more time. And, and just give those families, you know, the due they deserve to make sure that their loved one was given every possible chance to survive. We're speaking with the 31st Fire Commissioner of New York, uh, Sal Cassano, um, and listening to, by the way, uh, you've held every uniform rank in the department. So uh, yes. you know the department very thoroughly. So let's... Um, what I want to know is, when you go from rescue to recovery, you know it's it's not just a a state of the change of procedure; it's emotional devastation. 
for families. Because oh, well, without a doubt. I mean, you know, you'll see they'll bring in, once they do that, they're going to bring in heavier equipment, and, and they'll be moving more of the building at a time. And, and you know, there will be a realization for the family members that, you know, they don't think there's anybody else alive in, you know, in the, where they're working. And I, and I just funny, I, I just heard a, a, a brother speaking about his sister, and he says, I don't really have hope that she's alive, but what I do want is her body recovered mm-hmm. so that I can have a proper funeral and a burial for her that she deserves. So that, that's something else the families will be looking for once they say they're going to a, a recovery operation. But it's going to be devastating for them no matter what. Yeah, and that's a tough thing because once you announce recovery, it's like, okay, there's yeah. no more hope. Yeah. You know, and, all and hope you know, is gone. We've got to move forward. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, by the way, I, I have to compliment, you know, the, the mayor of Miami-Dade, I, I think her name is Kava, and, and the mayor of Surfside, and the governor. The, you know, their press conferences, people need to hear that information. I know they're having twice daily briefings at the Family Assistance Center for the families as well. You got to be a transparent. You can't be, you know, pie in the sky, but you still got to give some hope. And and they've been doing a tremendous job at these press conferences in a very difficult situation. You know, they're doing it in the rain and and you could hear the wind. And but they're out there and and they're giving as much information as they can. And families want to hear that. They want to be informed. They want to make sure that everything's being done possible for their loved ones and it is i can tell people that it really really is they had to stop today because i think they found they thought there was a little movement in the building and and that's what we did at the world trade center if we thought something was shifting we had a we had a horn that we blew everybody had to come out until we made sure that the there was no shifting of the material the last thing you want to do the last thing is have somebody seriously hurt or killed while they're trying to rescue somebody. Yeah. And luckily enough for us at the Trade Center, because of all the safety precautions we took, we never did. We had very few serious injuries after September 11th. Commissioner Cassano, you and I were on a phone call with uh, the Jewish clergy uh, in that area going through this hellish experience. And we talked about how as a chaplain, how as a person of faith, how do you confront someone in any way to move them from that, uh, you know, recovery to rescue, to re- rescue to recovery, uh, where there's no more hope. You really have to listen very carefully to what they're saying rather than imposing anything upon them. Absolutely, 100%. It's, you know, every, every family member is going to take it differently. Every family, you know, we encountered it from our own families, handle it in a different way. And if they if they're not ready to give up, then they're not going to be ready to give up. If they're you know if they this this first person was looking for a sister's body so they could have a funeral, but everybody's got to be different. You can't tell somebody what they can how they're going to feel. Mm-hmm. You know you can try to help them along, but you got to listen. You got to listen to where they're coming from, and just let them handle it in the way they're going to handle it. That's something we can't impose on somebody. Commissioner nine eleven. I remember, and Rabbi, you know this. Uh, because all of a sudden clergy were being mobilized from every faith tradition uh, that was uh, available because people wanted to speak to their clergy uh, before speaking to a mental health professional. So all of a sudden we found ourselves on the front line um, as part of 
the the response to this, yeah. uh, and I, I think it set a precedence across the country. I know it did in in, in our in our city, uh, Rabbi. You remember that even Look, at the command center. I I was telling uh, Commissioner recently that one of the most moving sights for me was was the Jewish New Year of you know Rosh Hashanah, where you sound the shofar. And we knew there were families there still looking for loved ones. We knew that uh, there was a, you know, the workforce there. Some of them were Jewish, maybe weren't able to go to a synagogue. So we sounded the chauffeur, and I remember Cardinal Legan being there, and I looked around, and clergy of all faiths and people of all faiths stopped what they were doing. Just Mm -hmm. stopped for a moment to say, we respect your tradition. Or when a body was taken out, clergy would stand together and recite various prayers but everybody would stop uh, again to preserve the dignity of that individual. And I will tell you from somebody that was there as much as anybody, um, seeing the clergy there gave us a little bit of hope and faith, you know, that Mm. our our efforts weren't in vain. We had a lot Mm. of support and people just didn't want to talk to a chaplain, you know, and it, it presented itself in a way that we hadn't had that before. But certainly, mm-hmm. as you said, Reverend, that chaplains from all over the country were mobilized and, and came and were, were at every spot where a first responder might be, and they were there in case somebody wanted to talk to them. It was a big help. It absolutely was a big help. What did you think of when you saw the Israeli and Mexicans coming in? That, that was a reassuring statement for uh, people there of different backgrounds. A hundred percent. You know, they they came for us. If it's September 11th, and just having the support of other people, and then and then you know down there the, the cultures. I know it's a heavily Jewish population, and and you know we dealt with the uh, IDF for a while coming here. We we exchanged ideas, and there was probably nobody more experienced than them in in collapse after all the terrorist events they've been through. And seeing them on the scene, I'm sure, was reassuring to people down there. They know their business. Same thing with. You know, other task forces that are coming. The, the one thing that people have to realize is when people do come to help, it's a coordinated effort. It isn't just willy-nilly people, oh, they're here and they're going to do their own thing. No. They report to the command post. They're given an assignment. They make sure that they're being coordinated with other people, and they're going to work. They're, just, they're helping out, but it's just not like, oh, they're here and they're just doing their own thing. That's not happening. It's very coordinated, and they know their job. They're very experienced as well. Uh, who takes the lead on, on, on that type of uh, uh, collaboration between all these different agencies and individuals showing up saying, I just want to help? You know, they're mobilizing from New Jersey. It was on the news uh, this mm-hmm. past week where there were one state and then other states mobilizing first responders to go down and, you know, do what they can. Uh, who ultimately oversees an operation like that? Well, it, it's going to be a unified command where you're going to have everybody that's involved in it. But usually it's, it's coordinated at the state level through the Office of Emergency Management, and they'll deal with you know, the other municipalities. But it's, it's funneled through the you know, Office of Emergency Management that will accept any help, or they're going to ask for it as well. Like they, you know, early on they had the Virginia 1 and 2 task force on standby, the highest, the Ohio task force on standby, because they knew that Miami-Dade, they have a great fire rescue down in Miami-Dade as well, but they couldn't handle it all on their own. They knew they were going to have to be relieved. And then once, once the hurricane hit, they started to mobilize some of the task forces so that the Miami-Dade could go back to what they were doing as first responders and not working at the collapse scene. 
Mm-hmm. It's coordinated through Office of Emergency Management, and it's just not people going down there and running and doing whatever they want. It's very well coordinated. After September 11th, we had the same issue. It was a problem at first. Once we got it under control, you know, they were sent to a place where they were in standby. Then when we needed them, we called them in. The last thing you need to do is have people working at the site that you don't know who they are. It just yeah. causes more confusion, and then it will be more injuries. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think about how tough when we were speaking earlier in the in, in, in the broadcast about you know timing that movement from uh, from rescue search and rescue to recovery because I, I don't know if you remember the uh, the building collapse in Bangladesh back in 2013. Oh yeah, like after 17 days, a woman uh, survived. She stayed mm-hmm. 17 days under the rubble. And they found her and, and and pulled her out. You know, how do you determine the length of time that you allow to find someone still alive? I, I believe that was a different type of collapse as well. You know, this is a pancake collapse where everything just came straight down. Other collapses, you might have a lean-to where there's more voids. So I'm, I'm assuming that that's what happened in Bangladesh. There were bigger voids, let's say bigger voids. Uh, but that's what people hear. You know, somebody, well, somebody lived for 17 days. At the end of the yeah, and day, someone, I'm sure a loved one would say, sure. "Yeah, you know, yeah. you guys are, are giving up too soon." Yeah. Uh, when you say you a void, to, that's why you have to go few. When you think that you're going into recovery, you have to give it a few more days. You just have to, just so yeah. that people yeah. don't think you're giving up as well. If you give up, all hope is lost. Yeah, you know. But they'll yeah. know when they get down where there are no more voids, and. They'll want to go into a search and rescue, I mean, a recovery operation. They'll even give it a couple more days after that. So, Commissioner, so when you say a void, you keep using the word void. Uh, explain that to our audience. What do you mean a by void a void? A void is some place where the, you know, the building material, when it collapsed, it didn't collapse all the way down flat. There was a space where you could move or you could breathe. Uh, so that just figure going to a small camping tent, that's a void. So it's like, hmm. you know, but again... It's either a lean-to where it's one piece of concrete leaning up against the other, and it's creating a little bit of a space. Yeah. So that's so, void. So, yeah, Even the smallest void can have somebody in there. So yeah, that's why you right. have to be careful when you're moving the sure, debris. Sure. Rene Arbenard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Commission, something that... How do they prepare? How do they learn what to do? I mean, I know there's simulated fires, but how do you learn how to, you know, take a building apart layer by layer? We actually, we actually, we've done that at our training center. And, and there's a place where we sent our people, I believe it's in Virginia, where there's a tunnel where they actually create collapse situations. Hmm. They, they put the debris, they set it up, and then they'll have people come in and train on it. It's just, you know, it's not simulated. You can't simulate that. So we do the same thing in our training academy. We use containers, and we would set up collapse situations in containers where we have voids in these containers, and then people would go in there and try to search and crawl through and see if they could pick up, you know, we would have uh, bodies in there, uh, not live, of course, but that they would see if they could find these bodies in the collapse situation. But we created it. Mm-hmm. So you can create these situations and then have your people go in there and try to figure it out, find out where there's possible voids, and then see if there's anybody we can pull out. Yeah, And it works. It does work. It's, it's great training. 
But we sent our people, you know, out of state to do it as well. Mm-hmm. So, go ahead. I'm sorry, Rev. No, I'm just trying to take it all in. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm almost stuck at the place of, you know, feeling for the people who don't want to give up hope, yeah. mm-hmm. and then having to make that decision. Who, who makes the call to move from from uh, search and rescue to recovery? It, it'll be, it'll be a collaboration between all the people down there, between the mayor and the governor, and and the rescue workers. It's going to be. It's not going to be one person's decision. It's going to be collaborative. Yeah, I, I have to they're say gonna, they're going to they're gonna ask the fire chief that I think he's been given the press conference. He's been he's been very good as well. They're going to ask him his professional opinion because I mean the, the elected officials don't know, but they're going right. to ask the professional opinion. What do you think? But there'll be a few people making that decision, and and then they'll decide collaboratively to say, I, there, "There was no more voids. We're not finding any more voids. We're going to have to move to re, a, a recovery operation." You know, it's interesting. We as people. It's so hard because you, know, you just don't want to give up hope. But eventually right. they're well, going to get to a point where there's not going to be any more voice. Well, see, and we people of faith, we have uh, boundless hope. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're always hoping. Don't hope take away our hope. With right? us. Absolutely. Right. Don't take away our hope. And yet, you know, at some point you have to work with the families. But I think there's a gradual acceptance, gradually. Uh, and you have to hold them and hug them during that period. Yeah. Gradual acceptance that. It's not going to happen. By the way, yeah, those first I, responders, when they go to a recovery operation, they're going to be devastated as well. Yeah, they're going to be devastated in that they couldn't find if they, if they don't find anybody alive. They're going to be devastated that they didn't they didn't do as much as they could have, even though they're doing everything possible. But that's just yeah. in our nature that we don't think we've done enough. That's a very important point out there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's a very important point because, you know, we a clergy, Rabbi and I talk about this for years, you know, in terms of what we do, always wondering, you know, if we're doing enough. But that's a very important point that you made there, Commissioner, that the the first responders are emotionally tied to this whole Mm -hmm. process. And 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 they're feeling that no, let's not stop, let's keep trying, right? right? I mean that's that's what they do. They're gonna be the last ones. They're going to want to go to a recovery operation. Believe me, they're going to want to do everything possible, and they're going to say, "Well, we still can go, we still can go," but hmm. it's yeah. going to be an emotional, very emotionally strained, strain, you know, for them. And they're going to all need counseling. They're all going to have to go to talk to somebody after they finish there because. They need to understand yeah. that they've done everything possible. And the FDNY counseling unit went there. Yep. Uh, we've, they are there. We learned yeah. an awful lot. We're paying it forward. We go to many different places now to offer our assistance. Unfortunately, we've learned through so many difficult experiences, September 11th being the biggest one, that uh, we can help out. And I know they're down there helping out, and that's just what we do. So, Commissioner. Is that part of the training now, Commissioner, besides all of the technical things that you do and tactical things that you do? Um, is there an emotional and psychological component to training uh, first responders? Sure. It's, it's part of it. We we have... we. Our counseling unit goes to all of our probie classes and, you know, sits down with them, explains some of the situations they may face, and and then it's just part of what we do. Shana, let me ask you a question that I know you've been asked by many others, but it bears repetition. You took over a department that was devastated. Um, 
and you, together with others, helped rebuild the department after having lost, at that time, 343, and of course there have been more with lingering illnesses who have succumbed. So where do you find that strength to say, we need to start again? Well, I I will tell you that right after September 11th, there were many people that weren't sure we were going to be able to rebuild. They thought we had lost 343 members. It was 4,400 years of experience. We lost our chief of department. We lost our first deputy fire commissioner. We lost a couple of our... We lost, really, a plethora of experience. And they just thought we were never going to be able to recover. My answer to them was, is we're going to rebuild this department. It's the New York City Fire Department. We have our responsibilities. We have the greatest people in the world that want to come to work. And this isn't just where you can fold up your card and say, I'm not playing anymore. You know, this is serious business, and, and we need to get back to what we do, and we're, going to re- and we're going to do it even better than we did before. And I can tell you, because of what, that, what happened on September 11th and the dedication and commitment of so many people that could have retired but stayed on for many years, you know, the department, with our training and our equipment, uh, is better prepared than ever, than we ever were. And it continues, even through this pandemic, the great job that they did during the pandemic. So we didn't have a choice. You know, you're going to rebuild. We, you know, we knew that some people needed to be reassured that we could do it, but they all were part of it. They all were, you know, it wasn't just one person that rebuilt this department. It was thousands of people. And Commissioner, I mean, these these individuals who become first responders, uh, it takes a certain disposition. I mean, look, good pay is important. We want good pay and good benefits. But to do this kind of job, it's got to be more than the money. There's got to be some disposition, some attitude about the value of human life that they're willing to sacrifice their own to save someone else. You know, Rev, it's I always tell people it's really not a job. It's a vocation. Because you just can't say, wow, this is a great job. I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm ready to give up my life for it. Because there's a lot of people in the financial world that are making a lot of money, and they're not ready to give up their life for it. So when when you're ready to say, I'm ready to risk my life for somebody that I don't know, Hmm. that takes a special person. Not so, a lot of people are going to raise their hand to do that. Yeah, but we we're so lucky in the, in you know New York City Fire Department between our firefighters and EMTs and paramedics. They love to come to work. They love to do this job, even in the darkest days. They know that the next day is going to be better. It takes a special person, believe me, it does. And also special yeah. special leadership. Don't minimize you know all the, the example you set for so many others. We're going to come to a close here, but uh, I was listening to you, Rev, you, Commissioner, say something. Uh, that I heard a rabbi in Florida uh, say the other day. He said, you know, we have to distinguish uh, between a job, a career, and a calling. Uh, Hmm. As was said before, a job, you know, you go in, do your work, get paid, that's it. There's no no other form of commitment. It's just going in there and getting what I, you know, I need to get here, and then I'll leave. A career, you know, is your professional development, and it enhances you. But as both of you have indicated... A calling is also what you do for someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that when you look at FDNY, when you look at first responders everywhere, you see health care workers who put their lives on the front line, it's, as you just said, Commissioner, it's more than a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. And we are just, yes. we are the beneficiaries of all that you and so many others have done for all of us. 
So we say absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And and commissioner, you can tell he gives me a sermon, uh, a new sermon every every broadcast. You know, and he gives me something to go back and preach. So. And let me com- always three that. points. Let me complete that, commissioner. <laughs> And I get no credit for it whatsoever. Ah, come on. Congregation says, wow. A great that, friend of mine. Like a great a friend good, of mine good always friend, says. A good friend of mine. <laughs> All right. Commissioner, thank you so much for being on the can show. I, can I give uh, uh, your listeners just one little bit of advice coming into the 4th of July? You know, 4th of July is a great day, a great holiday, but leave the fireworks to the professionals, please. Mm. And by yeah, the, yeah. Well said. And Absolutely. Yeah. And Commissioner, the birthday of our nation, uh, you served uh, selflessly in Vietnam. So we thank you for your service and all you've done uh, to enrich democracy in our thank country. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We'll be back. We'll be back right here on 77 WABC for more of the Rev and the, and rabbi. the rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, you know, when you talk to Commissioner Cassano, you get a very forthright presentation. He tells it as it is. At the same time, he is just as committed to his faith as to his calling. Because they're, yeah. connect, they're connected to one another. Uh, but uh, it was important to hear because I'm sure everyone who went through 9-11 saw the collapse of that building and started thinking of those dark days. And uh, you, know, you know, during the break, I thought about the conversation that we just had, and it was very human. It humanized the victims, their families, and it humanized the, the first responders to think that they're emotionally tied to people that they don't know and they're trying to save and they're the ones who are pushing for more time yeah. and saying no let's not give up yet that's that's tremendous that's powerful yeah and i was i was telling clergy because you know there's the intersection of tradition and uh, application so you know talking about the various rules of death and I said, you know, that's all important, but don't forget to lose sight of an individual who is in dire pain. And you got to be able to listen to him and then together work out something that is meaningful. Um, yeah. I remember funerals. And, and let's talk about the role of faith, Rabbi, because the role of faith in this is, is can, can be, there can be a tension because people can sure. think that, you know, if I have faith, I do good. Lead a reasonably good life, you know. Um, also, that, yeah, the loss of faith. I mean, there are yeah, those well, who are going to. I'm thinking that first people start out thinking that faith will protect you from these things happening. There are people who believe that. There was, you know, one woman who talked about how she lit a candle, and I think she, she was Catholic. She, she lit a candle to um, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and. Um, you know, once she lit the candle and put it in, 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 in her room, in the apartment that she was in, she sees a, a crack start mm. from the ceiling and work its way down the wall. It mm. scared her. Sure. She ran out. And just as she got out into the hallway to the elevator, half of the half of the building collapsed. Yeah. So she saw it as her faith protecting her. But then you have the people who weren't protected. Yeah. And, and and they were people of faith. And, and what do you say to them, Rabbi? You know, 
one of the first funerals I did when I first became a rabbi was for uh, a young man who uh, was killed in a, it was a snowball fight. It was an ugly scene in the university campus. And, you know, his mom came over to me before the service and just looked at me. And I knew what she was going to say. She says, why, why didn't God give him more years? Mm. Now, there is no adequate answer to that query. Because you and I have heard the question many times, where is God when tragedy yeah. St- strikes? Yeah. Um, and I always, and I, I'm always, you know, you have to be honest. You, at that moment, I don't think families want to hear stories. They want to hear honesty from you. You're a person right. I believe, you represent a faith, and I am beginning to reject the faith that you represent. And I, and I think what you first have to do is to say to the person, I understand. I hear what you're saying, and I understand it fully. I might react the same way, but I also know that, you know, that the heavens are higher than the earth, and there comes a moment for people of faith to say, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer, but at least through faith, I have the courage to find an answer or to build again. Now, in your faith tradition, uh, I, I suppose you're answering right now my question from your faith tradition. You know, in our faith tradition, we try to tie it to some greater purpose that that out of every tragedy, there is a greater good. And the problem is that we don't always see that greater good. We, we can go, you know, 10, 10, 20 years later wondering where where is the greater good that came yeah. out uh, of, of that tragedy? I was watching a, a young a grandchild said, you know, I think I can help rescues. Must have been about seven or eight years old. I think I can help rescue my grandmother because she and I would play hide-and-seek uh, in the building, in the stairwell, and I know where she would hide. So, you know, send me in, so to speak. But the wow. stories we're going to hear are going to be so, so devastating, and people are going to be angry. Some will embrace God more. Some will question. Uh, I think I told you Golda Meir, who was the first female prime minister of the state of Israel, said, I believe in God, but he shouldn't expect any medals from me. Uh, hmm. You know, so people, hmm. I, I think we, uh, we all, you know, in that situation, understand the challenge of God. Yeah, I, I think it's important. And you, I know, you and I are seasoned veterans in this. We know that the worst thing we could do is try to explain it yeah. all away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, life is mystery. There are just some things that we just have to accept by faith, and it's difficult. I, you know, I program like this, you can't help but have this kind of a conversation. And, and I heard a statement, and I really agree with it and love it. It says, faith may not always protect you from what happens, but it will definitely help you get through what happens. Yeah. And I think that's... Yeah where we have to shift and I, and I think it, it yeah. happened now how do we get through it yeah and not just faith but family and friends right, uh, right. You, you need community and I think we're seeing in, in Florida Surfside people coming together I watched a film oh, this past weekend on the Sabbath the Mexican and Israeli rescuers were coming together uh, to recite a blessing and I think some of them from what I understand some of the Mexicans no Hebrew because they were trained in Israel. So, huh. you know, so you saw people reciting a blessing together, but uh, it's going to require everybody doing everything they can. And I know the clergy in Florida have gone through this with the families and uh, all of us. Whenever there's a tragedy, 
need to recognize that someone else is hurting deeply, and we can hold them up. And I will tell you, uh, I, in, in the absence of answers, sometimes I've learned, you know, I've been in ministry for 42 years, uh, and I've learned the power of presence. Sometimes just being there, Rabbi, just being there and being available uh, makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, yeah. We, as a matter of fact, I, I spoke of that uh, on this call to the clergy, the, the theology of presence that, you know, what Maya Angelou said years ago, uh, they may not remember what you said, what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. you know, people are going to require a lot of assistance here, spiritual, uh, physical, mental, emotional, whatever you call it. Uh, it, it's going to be a comprehensive approach. But I also yeah, find yeah. that many families value clergy during this time. They want to hold on yeah. to clergy. They want to hold on to we, faith tradition. We represent a higher set of values. We, we, we represent the transcendent. We represent hope that, you know, there is something greater than ourselves that's going on and and somehow con- conducting and controlling and yeah. Um, you know, leading us in the way that we should go. And, yeah. and I don't see how, pe- how people could live without hope. I don't Listen, see I, We, as people of faith, appreciate uh, it's, it strengthens us uh, from within, so much so that we're able to, you know, uh, confront others who are going through yeah. a devastating experience. All right. Every time you open your eyes in the morning and wake up, that's another day of hope. Right. Another day of hope and time to recite a blessing for, for life. Next week, Rev? Yeah, we'll be back. Of course, it's 4th of July, and uh, I, I think how we close with the commissioner saying, be careful. Yeah, please. Yeah. And Enjoy also, the day. And take and a be moment. Careful. And take a moment to say, thank you, America. Thank you for enabling me to live in the greatest land. And I think that would be uh, uh, the right approach. Uh, especially during this divided time. All right. Amen to that. Thank you, sir. Till next time, the Rev and the Rabbi. Stay safe. Be well. God bless.